This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> and I'm Eric Shaw Glenn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. The brought, smarmiest gay detectives in the world. Brought to you by AM Radio from the 70s, <laughs> apparently. That's FM. F- was FM. Oh, yeah. AM was all, hi, it's AM, it's KCK7, and I need to in top 40, and that was AM. That was terrifying. I never uh, would have uh, listened FM to AM. Was, FM was high, babe. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense, because AM became the home of talk radio for crazy people. Yeah, so totally. Get it. I don't know what yeah. happened to any of that. I don't know that I, when was the last time I listened to the radio? I know. I know. But listen. Yes, Linda. We have a mystery here at the TDPS studio. Dun, dun, dun. It is the mystery of the bathroom rug. Oh my God, the <laughs> ugliest rug. Where did that come from? We don't from? know where it came from. It showed up during the pandemic. Somebody Maybe. brought us a rug? I don't... Like, I, did they feel like we needed one? Did I it seem like... Know. I mean, it is a bathroom, technically, but... Nobody takes a bath in there. We weren't here for weeks. Like nobody oh. was here for weeks. We haven't we didn't yeah. record here for almost over a year, but like I didn't start coming in on a regular basis to work here at all until, until your housekeeper came until back. Until my housekeeper came back when it was safe for that. It was Christopher's hiding place. It was my hiding place, but I, yeah, we and, and I was like I saw the rug and I was like I don't I don't remember it and maybe needs a wash. I don't know. And then you came in and you were like, "What is this filth in the bathroom?" <laughs> I declare this rug an interloper from the Ruglands. I have never owned anything that ugly ever anywhere before in my whole... It's like, where did this rug come from? It's one of those (laughs) shitty, cheap dollar store, like handloom kind of rag rugs that you get, that you find, you know, at the... uh, the teardown farmhouse somewhere way out in the wilderness, and they bought it at the. It's just the ugliest. It's like what? What? I, Who would yeah. buy this rug and bring it here? And do we need a rug? Like that's the real question. It's like, why is this rug here? Here's my theory. Okay, here is my Here's theory. A theory. Here's my wow. theory. Wow, rug theory. I think we had one, and I think. The custodial staff here either did something to it or lost it. I think oh. it got traded out with somebody else's rug. I think our original bathroom rug is somewhere at one of our neighbors, and we have theirs. And nobody gives a shit because our neighbors are probably gone now because there's been so much turnover in this building because of the pandemic. And I think the key word is original rug because that rug is really original. It's, it's super original. It's, it's like, like, okay, I would never have bought this rug. Um, so it looks like it's time for me to get us a new rug. It sounds like it, yeah. Because we need a rug? Like I don't know. I don't know if we need a rug in there. I'm not butchering. But if it's but if it's a self defense rug, yeah. You know, like if if in order to get rid of that rug, I need to buy a new rug. <laughs> I'm glad to do it. 
keep the yes. keep away rug, yes, right? Absolutely. It's to keep away other rugs. <laughs> totally. Maybe I can find one with a with a cross on it. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Keep, keep, keep out mystery rugs for all time. Yes, I support I that. I have always thought that I could make a million dollars making area rugs that have like that have woven in the chalk marks of like a body lying <laughs> on the rug with like a and a blood stain. Yes. I would so love a rug like that. I yeah, think that would be I th- really I think cool. if you charge $300,000 per rug, you could easily make a million dollars. Yeah, no, I think I was thinking like you'd want it to be affordable and you could sell a million rugs. Okay. It's the it's the Jeff Bezos school of being rich, not the <laughs> not the <laughs> not the um, Tiffany uh, Louis Tiffany Comfort school right. of being rich. It's exactly. The, yes, it's the Jeff Bezos school of like, yeah, but if you sell till 10 billion of them, you'll be a billionaire. Yeah. He is. So totally. He's going to go to space or something. And I don't because know. Because he can. Because what's left. <laughs> because for, he could do whatever he fucking wants for to. For Jeff so Bezos. Like, good for him. Yeah. He's okay. Taking his brother. We don't have time for all of this tomfoolery. It is a true crime TV club episode. I'm sorry. Did I bring up the mystery no, of the I, phantom I, rug? I also want to talk about your new lotion because we talk a lot about lotions here at the dinner party show. Yes, I am a man of hand lotion. <laughs> I have all dry hands, and uh, so I love my uh, hand lotion. And my friends, Dan and Fernando, gave me a new brand of hand lotion, which I have now outfitted the office with. It's... Uh, A la maison, cherry blossom, moisturizing shea butter, and argan oil hand lotion. And it's amazing. It smells delicious. It smells It reminds me of one of my favorite stories about our sound designer genius. It reminds me of something. It reminds me of me is what it does. So (laughs) everybody drink. Everybody drink because whenever I make it about me. But it's really about Brandon, the genius in our sound booth. Uh, I had a 40th birthday dinner. (laughs) Um, the funny, the other funny part of the story. Twenty five years ago, I had a fortieth birthday dinner. Uh, I decided I like rooftop restaurants. I like views. I like skyscrapers. So I he thought, really loves it if the restaurant revolves, but that's harder to find it, these days. That's like an eighties thing. That's kind of over. It's really going out. Yeah, There's some, but you have to really go to an old hotel. Yeah, you it's really a retro do. thing. Like an old hotel, like in Memphis. It's not the coasts of banished revolving restaurants. I don't know. Maybe they cause cancer. I think the Westin still has a revolving restaurant. Does it? Does it still or, revolve? I don't know if they still call it the Westin Bonaventure, but that, whatever that is, I think still has a revolving. That was the site of one of my favorite sitcoms, It's a Living, which uh, was a hit in syndication because it wasn't when they first put it on the air. But anyway, let's stay focused on this completely ridiculous story. Yes, I'm so sorry. I I hate to be distracted. There's just so much tomfoolery on our podcast, and I think people tune in because they want our our heavy-handed... Uh, literate takes on various true crime stories. Yeah, we're very strict around here, by God. So I had this birthday dinner. I booked this gorgeous private dining room. (laughs) And it is the one fucking night of the year in Los Angeles that thunderous rainstorms move in. I mean, this is drought central. And it was, I mean completely Where, socked you, in. You said your first thought on walking in was like, I, why, go ahead, you say I, it. Yeah, I walked in and I was like, well, why would we want to have a, re- a dinner in a room with this big cement wall? <laughs> it was clouds. It was clouds. We were on top of the tallest building west of the Mississippi, the Hotel Intercontinental in downtown Los Angeles. It's like it, 70 stories up. And it looked like a cement wall. 
wall. <laughs> Literally could not see anything. I did not realize they were even windows. <laughs> there were walls of glass is yeah. what they were. The whole room was glass. It was all about the view and we could not see anything. There were moments yes. Yes. that the building across the way would kind of come into view right. and then it would go away again. The clouds And when it would happen, everybody bit. would get up from the table and be, well, oh, 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 no. It was like your team didn't score. Yeah. <laughs> it was terrible. But Brandon was there and and as usual with all things TDPS, it's like Brandon and a lot of gay people. And so everyone was like passing around my gifts. Poor Brandon. Poor Brandon has learned a lot working with the dinner party show, but stuff he never wanted to learn. And so um everyone is passing around my gifts. You know, I know it's like lotion and candles and whatever and, and girly gr- stuff. Girly stuff. And all the gay boys are like, Ooh, this smells nice. This smells like oranges and vanilla. I like it. And blah, blah, blah. and then I hear it gets to Brandon and I hear Brandon turn to the person next to him and say, would you like to smell Christopher's lotion? (laughs) Because that was what everybody else was saying at the table. And by God, Brandon was going to play along with the party that he was at. But he was also saying... The best sport in the whole wide world. He was also saying, I will not be smelling Christopher's lotion. I'm going to pass it along now politely. You don't know that. I believe that Brandon probably smelled Christopher's lotion. Did you smell the lotion, Brandon? he did, oh, he's as his wife. His wife was his lovely wife Daphne was sitting next to him. She probably smelled the lotion for them both because and that's the type of thing. I would just do. like to say that I do not believe that girly is that saying that it was girly stuff is a negative. It is not a negative. I love me some girly. I am stuff. not being dismissive when I say that it was absolutely girly stuff. not. I love we, my girly I, stuff. That's, they were my presents, and I was happy to I get am them. All about it. I'm the one who's talking about his cherry blossom hand cream that Absolute started this whole loot, great man. conversation. Although Christopher did make me talk about it, I, I wouldn't did. have brought it up. But it really is good. You can get it on um, Amazon for nothing, and it's amazing. That's fantastic. It's shea butter and whatever. I love the rose scented. Um, that uh, that L'Occitane sells, the shea mm-hmm. butter hand cream, but it comes in smaller containers. And, uh, uh, you know, I just thought this was a nice addition to my repertoire of hand creams. Absolutely. We have no time to be talking about this. Curated. I don't know. What, really, we're just, just, I mean, we're just swamped. We're it just is, swamped. But we have a story today to talk about on True oh Crime TV God, Club that is incredibly a story. And compelling, but it's also incredibly intricate. We sometimes joke around, I take the notes for True Crime TV Club. And whenever we do 2020, and I have to say, when we started this, I had a dim view of 2020, mainly because they weren't as well lit or well edited as Dateline, and Dateline is my jam. But 2020 manages to pack an amazing amount of information into an hour and a half. And the note-taking is like, I'm a court reporter, right? Because like, like, I do it on my computer, I've got it playing on one side of the screen, and I take the notes of the document. And I was like, oh my God, but this story in particular is one of the most... Um, I would say multi-dimensional that we have ever done. It, it was it was one of those things where I saw the scenes from it and I went. I called him. This said, was yours. We're yeah. doing this. We're doing this. We have to yeah. do this. I said I'm watching it, whether we're doing it or not. But I think we should do it. It just is. I mean, I could not. I spent the entire time with my chin on the table, like I just could not. And it wasn't because I'd passed out. It was which is because my mouth was hanging open. Um, it was just I could not believe the story. It was just not since. Um, 
the problem with Pam or whatever. The thing about Pam, you can never say the name right. I love it. You always call whoa, it something. Whoa, 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 whoa. The um, thing yeah. about Pam, that's a like, Dateline episode. Oh, my God, yeah. this story. Oh, my God, this story. Yeah. Okay, so we should get into it because, like, it's going to take a, lot a of long time. It opens with a teaser, and what I mean when I say that is they show you a flash of, of the excitement to come, and then they start at the beginning of the story, which is a very TV thing to do. Um, Denise Huskins, a very beautiful blonde woman, is speaking to us directly and saying she awoke from a dream at 3.16 a.m. one night and heard a strange voice in her bedroom. When her eyes shot open, she sees a flashing white light and a red laser dot crossing the wall. A voice says to her, wake up, this is a robbery. The intruder says he's going to put zip ties on the side of the bed, and she is going to have to secure, use them, excuse me, to secure her boyfriend Aaron's hands behind his back. He is in bed next to her, also waking up in this moment. She's also going to have to secure his feet with the zip ties. She complies and says her thoughts in that moment are, how could this be meant for anyone? That is the end of the teaser. And then we go to a wide aerial shot of an area of Northern California just outside of San Francisco called Mare Island. It is part of the city of Vallejo. Beautiful. Yeah. Just beautiful. I think it's former military. I think they said that a former naval base. It used to be a ba- uh, yeah a military installation, probably a naval base, because um, it's on the ocean. I mm-hmm. can't imagine it would be like anybody it, else. But yeah, it was really, and it had since been you know settled, populated by... Um, Maybe the base closed or got smaller. I'm not sure. But just a beautiful area. The Bay Area, they said. The Bay Area, yes, where I'm originally from before I moved to Kenner, Louisiana, as Eric likes to tell people. So it's 2015. Also, if you're not familiar with 2020, they don't narrate the episode and they don't usually have a host, although they do for this one. And they have more. They have the host appear on camera interviewing the subjects. Usually it's just a series of talking heads uh, that they show giving you the whole story, and one of those I talking. I can't remember, heads, but this was a much more in-depth. Um, well, your 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 boy Matt Murphy. Oh my god! Yeah, your husband Matt Murphy. Oh my is one. god! Wow! Yeah, it was like not only was it a great story, but he was going to be telling me a lot of it. Wow. Okay, so we may dip in and out of identifying these talking heads, but they aren't major players in the stories. Where a story that we're going to tell you when they are, we will make that clearer by telling you what they actually did and how they affected it. Um, it's 2015. We're on Mare Island, part of Vallejo, as we said. This is a quiet place of white picket fences, as it's described by the show. Um, uh, Aaron, who we met earlier in the teaser, buys his house in 2012 and thinks that he's going to live there forever. It's his dream home. And he really planning. was a lovely yeah, place. I... It was. Um Aaron and Denise are both uh, physical therapists when they meet. Denise is doing a residency in Aaron's department. Uh, They begin dating. However, Aaron has just broken up with his fiance after he found out that the fiance was having an affair. Denise is concerned that he might still have feelings for her. And it turns out she might be a little right. Right. Good instinct there, Denise. Uh, He brings Denise to meet his family and they like her, but they comment in interviews that she looks a lot like his ex-fiance. She really does. Denise suspects he hasn't cut the cord completely, so she checks his phone, which is always a dicey proposition. Yeah, really not a big fan of checking other people's phones, but in this case, it was kind of justified. She finds something. She finds that he has been texting with his ex and saying that he wants to get back together. So I just want to note, 
that Denise is telling us this story in an interview, sitting next to Aaron. Holding his hand. Being interviewed by Amy Robach, who is the host of this uh, Yeah, so clearly they've gotten past it somehow. Also, they've gotten past the robbery somehow. There was not like... We didn't know what was going to happen mm-hmm. because there they both are and they're telling us this horrific story. So we know those things are apparent right off the bat. And and yeah, and they did, but they addressed it. Like yeah. she confronted him. Mm-hmm. And she was devastated. Yeah, absolutely. And so they, they are apart for a couple weeks and then they agree to meet so that Aaron can plead his case to her. At the house. At the house. At Aaron's house. This is March 22nd, 2015. She meets him there. She brings pizza. They talk on the couch about rebuilding trust. They go to bed feeling positive, which I thought was code for makeup sex and good for them. Yeah. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. (laughs) 3 a.m. We are back at the teaser. We are at the beginning of the episode And it was the same night. Yeah, the same night that they were getting back together. That's the part that just blows me away. Like, they get together, they have this conversation, they do or do not have makeup sex, but they wind up in the same bed together, they are asleep, and then the story that they started with begins to unfold. Denise wakes up at 3 a.m. They both wake up at 3 a.m. They hear the voice of an intruder say, wake up, this is a robbery, we're not here to hurt you, this is financial. After Denise ties up Aaron as she is instructed to do, they order her to walk to the bedroom closet, She's trying hard not to look at their faces because she doesn't want to be able to identify them because she thinks that will endanger her life. She's right. As she turns the corner of the bed, she sees two sets of legs. The one closest to the closet follows behind her and ties her up. He puts swim goggles covered in black tape over her eyes and over Aaron's eyes. He puts headphones over their ears with pre-recorded messages in which he's giving them instructions. It's like, this is a I mean, this movie. is really just the most terrifying. I just cannot imagine this robbery. They are wearing wetsuits, although we don't find that until later. Yeah. Like, it is just the most laser focus, laser focus on right. their guns is going around the room. They're blinded with the flashlights still in the dark. Just terrifying. Everything terrifying. about this is just... But the pre-recorded messages thing, that just sent chills down my spine. And I think this was in the pre-recorded messages. They say to them, we're going to give you a sedative, and if you don't take it, we'll inject it. Right. Meanwhile, they can hear a drill going downstairs. So the intruder comes back to the closet, and he tells Denise, I'm going to move you to the router room, which scares the shit out of her because that means he knows the house well enough to know where the internet routers are in their home, in Aaron's home, I should say. Um, He guides her to the next bedroom. He plays a new recording through her headphones that tells her they're going to ask for personal financial information 
and if they're lying, they'll cut their partner's face or give them an electric shock. So obviously, she gave up her personal information. I mean, Jesus, what would you do? So Aaron is thinking at this point, okay, they'll take all my money. Fine. I don't care. I just want to live through this. Right. Then the intruder says, we have a problem. Do Denise and your ex-fiance look alike? And it turns out they have planned this robbery to target Aaron and his ex-fiance. Who, I don't know if she was an heiress or what, but the the ex-fiance was key to their plan. And... And because she's not there, everything has apparently changed. It completely changes the nature of the way the crime is going to unfold. In this way, which is horrifying. So the intruder comes back and he says to Denise, we're going to take you to a second location while Aaron completes some tasks. They move Aaron down to the couch. They tell him there's a camera on the wall that they've placed there that will be watching his every move. They put a tape perimeter down on the ground that he's not supposed to step out of. Because they can't see him by the camera. So yeah. they can keep him on camera at all times. He's not supposed to call anybody. There are all kinds of instructions. Um, and then this is the moment, I think, where they reveal that the intruders are wearing wetsuits, which your boyfriend, Matt Murphy, says is an amazing way to keep from leaving trace evidence at the scene right. of the crime. which they didn't. And... I mean, it was a really incredibly intricately planned crime. And when Denise hears that they're taking her to another location, she just assumes that she's dead. She's dead. Because of the, there's one piece of advice that no law enforcement officer disagrees with. Do not go to a second location. Right. If you are abducted, even if they put a gun on you, do not get in Say, the car. Say, shoot me here because do, I am not getting in that car do with you. not, not going mm-hmm. anywhere. But she's already tied up in the way they, I mean, it's yeah, just and like. And sedated. I mean, there's very little they can do about right. it. The intruder says that they're going to communicate with Aaron via text and email specifically to a dedicated account that they've established. They, uh, they tell him, they tell Denise, I can't remember, does Aaron, Aaron has to call in sick to work. But does he have to call in on behalf of yes. Denise, or do they make Denise no. call? Okay, they, they, he also has to say that she will not be coming in. And I can't remember there was some wrinkle to how they wanted him to do it, but it was basically him telling yeah. everybody that they wouldn't be in. Uh, and he tells, of course, because he's a monster. The intruder says, "If you tell anyone what's happening, I'll kill Denise." Right. They lift her up. They put her in the trunk of Aaron's car, uh, and they drive away. And once Aaron is alone, he manages to push the goggles off on the edge of the sofa. I guess he just leans over and uses the arm of the sofa to get them off his face. Right. At this point, it's 5 a.m. So they've gone through this ordeal for two hours with these people in their house. Uh, The sedative finally takes effect, and it knocks him out. His alarm goes off at the usual time. He manages to call in sick, as he's been instructed to do. He, uh, I think he tries to text Denise... Yeah, they have changed the the twist ties, the zip ties on him to duct tape. Ah. So he is able eventually to free his hands and his feet. But right. he was tied up to begin with, but it was not as impervious as the zip ties would have been. And so um, the sedative kicks in again, though. He's fighting it. Yeah, he's having a terrible time staying awake. He's trying to, because he doesn't want to miss their messages and stuff, but... But he keeps passing out. All of it is just, yeah, he's continuing to deal with. 
So at 11.30 a.m., I think he's finally able to, like, wake up and start trying to do something about this. The intruders start uh, sending him instructions. They say they want their money in two payments of $8,500 to avoid the $10,000 reporting limit. I'm going to say this now. This was just me watching. This was a lot of information about who this criminal was because this criminal kept explaining his thinking, yes. his genius. Like, I thought that was like, okay, that's Super an- Super genius. Right. Wiley Coyote was clearly one of the candidates, uh-huh. yes. Totally. Um, so he realizes if he gives them the money, I, I don't understand my own notes that I wrote here. I wrote, he realizes if he gives them the money, he thinks they're both dead. That he thinks they're both going to die if well, he complies. Well, he's-, he's- are, they've said, don't contact the police, don't do anything, because if you do, we'll kill him. But he's, like, thinking, are we dead anyway? Like, yeah. do I am I better off to contact somebody and maybe there's a chance? Or am I willing to risk her life mm-hmm. by reporting this? And so he makes a decision. He calls his brother, who is an FBI agent. Wow, how yeah. convenient is that? His brother's immediate response is, you got to call 911. They always tell you this. They yes. always say, if you call the police, we'll kill so-and-so or we'll do something. But they want their money. And so call 911. So he does the exact, thing, uh, the exact thing the intruders told him not to do. The police arrive at his house. And as the host tells us, phase two of the nightmare begins. I mean, no. I think the real nightmare begins. As bad as you thought this robbery was, as horrific as what happened to these people was, the really terrible part did not start until the authorities arrived. 1.50 p.m. It's nine hours since Denise has been taken. Two Vallejo police officers arrive at Aaron's house. They ask if he's been drugged. He says yes. The kidnappers drugged him. They ask if he's taken any drugs. Ah, yeah. And he says, "Yes, they, 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 yeah. they, the kidnappers drugged me. Yes, I am there. I am under the influence." The first thing they do—that camera, the intruders left on the wall to monitor Aaron—the detectives pick it up in one bare hand and, and, and unplug it. Unplug it. So there's no tracing the signal anymore. So they immediately disconnect um, their connection to the, because all the while Aaron is telling them what's happened. And they are noticing a clean scent in the home, which suggests recently vacuumed carpets. They go to his bed and they detect a small amount of blood on the bed sheet, which Aaron tells us is from like months ago, which didn't wash out. It's a blood stain on the sheet from, yeah. But the talking heads, not necessarily playing devil's advocate, but they're telling us what the police are seeing in terms of how the police sometimes look at this stuff. Right. And, you know, fair's fair. They're seeing a guy who they think waited a substantial amount of time before calling 911. It's the morning of after the crime, so... His mm-hmm. car is missing. Okay. Uh, to their eye, it has all the components of a domestic violence murder. So they take him to the station to give a statement. Meanwhile, Ethan's uh, Aaron's brother, Ethan, is the FBI agent. He's contacting the family. Uh, 3.30 p.m., they are, the cops and Aaron arrive at the Vallejo police station. They're taking DNA samples. They're taking Aaron's clothes. He's cooperating. And when they give him clothes back, he realizes they're prison clothes, which yeah, is not like a good old-fashioned, sign. old-timey prison clothes with, like, black and white stripes. It yeah. looks like Harold Lloyd's prison clothes. And it is the, in this moment that we are fully introduced to Detective Matt Mustard. Colonel Mustard. Who, who the fact that that man is still... Well, we'll get there. Just 
He immediately begins grilling Aaron about his relationship. He also begins grilling Aaron about his history with his ex-fiance. He does not, however, ask any questions about the crime. Also important, we will get back to this in a moment, he has taken Aaron's phone. Yeah. Just remember that. He's taken Aaron's phone away. Uh, The tone of the interview becomes increasingly accusatory. 45 minutes in, Detective Mustard leans back in his chair and says to Aaron, I just think you're lying. There ain't no frogmen coming to your house. Simultaneously, Aaron's parents are down the hall also getting grilled by the police. His mother is saying that Aaron was literally voted something called Boy of the Year in high school uh, because it was a good behavior, good whatever. Right, because he's like the ideal kid. Yeah. The cops don't want to hear that. They've basically, it becomes clear even to Aaron's family that they have already decided that he has killed Denise. Right. Mustard even brings up the Lacey Peterson case. If you're not familiar with the Lacey Peterson case, which uh, you're probably not far away from this particular crime. And yeah, but it's another case of where, you know, the husband was ultimately found guilty of of uh, murdering his wife in some sort of domestic event. Exactly. Um, Aaron is able to walk out of the station at this point, but he doesn't because he's. I think, A, convinced on some level he might be able to convince them they're wrong, but also he's convinced he will be arrested the minute he tries to leave, so he doesn't. Denise's parents have been notified that she's missing, and they are told to expect the worst, just like Jesus. Um, They tell Denise's family they don't believe a word that's coming out of Aaron. These are some chatty fucking police detectives. I'm telling you. Um, They tell them there's blood in his house. They don't specify that it's like a micro dot. And it's a stain that's completely dried out on a bed sheet. But yeah, there's almost no blood in his house, in fact. Aaron agrees to take a polygraph. Nobody has called a lawyer, They bring in the FBI to give him a polygraph test. The FBI agent involved is now harassing him, saying, I think you're guilty. Why are you lying to us? And so finally, 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 Aaron asks for a lawyer, which I'm sorry, he should have done like an hour, two hours Which they don't give him. They don't. They get his brother to come into the room because they're convinced that he will confess to his brother. I'm not clear on what they told the brother before he went in there. You know, like, I guess, did they say get a confession out of your brother? I'm not sure he would have gone. I can't imagine that they said that, but I don't know. I mean, they were not clear about it, but I think, but but their plan was pretty clear that he would confide in his brother and it would be the information they were looking for. And instead, his brother gets there and he just comes to pieces because no one has showed him an ounce of humanity mm-hmm. in the time that he has been in uh, in custody. Just, I, just one of the most shocking things I've ever seen in my life. Obviously, they're going to suspect him, but obviously there was tape on the floor and cameras and all kinds of other evidence for um, something having happened in that house, and they should have begun that part of the investigation simultaneously, mm-hmm. but they didn't. So Ethan calls a defense attorney, Daniel Russo, a scrappy fighter from the Bronx. <laughs> he takes Aaron back to the office because they don't have anything on him. They can't arrest him. They, they don't have enough. So the defense attorney's like, let's get you the fuck out of this police station and stop talking to these right, people. these assholes. And then, as Eric Jarquin likes to say, <laughs> a call comes into the San Francisco Chronicle from Denise. She offers proof of life. It's her, definitely her voice. She gives them relevant information about the news events of the day. It was when that 
uh, pilot in Germany, I believe, crashed that passenger plane into the jet, the, uh, into the ground, I should say, the German wings crash. She talks about all that. The passengers in suicide by plane yeah. crash or whatever. So it's, it's, a, it's a convincing proof of life. The San Francisco Chronicle contacts the Vallejo police. They, in turn, call Aaron back to the police station. They say they want him to send a message to the kidnappers, and they want him to use his phone, which they took earlier. Now, I, at this point, Aaron has a defense attorney in his presence, so he witnesses what happens next. They give the phone back to them. The cops have switched it to airplane mode. This is the phone that the kidnappers told him they would contact him on, and they've put it in airplane mode. And when they take it out of airplane mode, floods of messages from the kidnappers. Forty-two text it's messages. It's like boom, 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 boom. Literally, they were being sent to the police station. The kidnapper was communicating with a phone that was at the police station, and they had. Oh my god! I so what? <laughs> yet another missed opportunity by these incompetent boobs who should all now be working. I don't know in like craft services or something. I just nothing. To do with law enforcement. But what do they do instead? They decide that Aaron has an accomplice. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So... Detective Mustard begins to dig in on this theory. That's really his name. We're not being we're dicks not, about it. He really a, is Colonel Mustard. It's not a nickname. He starts to dig into this. He starts to dig in on his bullshit theory that is being disproven with every passing moment. And he says, Aaron has an accomplice. He starts interrogating Denise's family to find out if anything bad ever happened to her. And her mother admits that Denise was molested as a young woman, to which Detective Mustard Oh my God, this is responds, maybe the most hideous thing in the whole story. He says, well, some people who are molested like to recreate those types of events later in life because it excites them. To her mother. To and her mother. she's missing and kidnapped. And she's called the San Francisco Chronicle with proof of life. Like, just... Now, Detective Mustard, who declined to be interviewed for this, um, bet. Uh, or this any special, other, ever. De- denies making this statement and denies ma- doing everything that is said about him, basically. Which, which is, I don't you know, believe. Whatever. I don't believe. Um, um, and then Denise Huskins is found safe and alive in Huntington Beach, California, many hours south of where she was abducted. Where her parents are from. It's Wednesday, March 25th. Yeah, she's 400 miles from where she was kidnapped, but she has literally been dropped off blocks from her parents' old house. I guess it's where she grew up. They Did they still live there? Yeah, she goes yeah. and she, yeah, she fucking knocks on their door. And she, they're not home because they're in Vallejo because they have been told by this idiot police detective that she's been murdered and mm-hmm. they should come expecting the worst. 
So she literally walks to the house. She she was told he gave her her bags when he dropped her off. He said, count to 10 before you take the 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 goggles off or wherever she, whatever she still had in terms of restraints. Don't do it before then. I'm watching you. She follows the instructions to the letter. She gets to the house. And yeah, when she has to call her dad, she has to leave a voicemail because he's been carted up to Vallejo. Um, uh, when she comes out of the bathroom at her neighbor's house, her neighbor has taken her in. Two officers from the Huntington Beach Police Department are there. They begin to question her. She tells exactly the same story that Aaron has told without communicating with him first. Right. He's in another city when this is happening. Um, she also describes being in the trunk for hours. Uh, they continued to sedate her with liquid benzodiazepines, sedatives. She says she wasn't sexually assaulted. She says she was treated nicely. She keeps asking for her parents. Finally, her cousin, who is a local, shows up. He sort of takes her under his wing. Um, And the Huntington Beach police basically say, this is Vallejo's case. We're turning this all over to Vallejo. And the cousin kind of shuts them down because they're already starting in on her. So the cousin talks to Detective Mustard, whose response to all of this is, we'll give immunity to, to, to whoever confesses first to making this whole thing up. Detective Mustard also denies making this offer. I, I, don't, I don't know why right. all these people would be making this up. Denise gets a defense attorney, Douglas Rappaport, who's based out of San Francisco. He says, absolutely do not get on the private plane the FBI has offered you to absolutely. fly you up to Vallejo. You're going to get on a commercial flight and you are going to come directly to my office in San Francisco when you land. She goes, okay. So in response to this, the Vallejo police go on this television just... and they characterize her as being non-cooperative and they claim she has fallen out of contact with them, all of which is total Just a bullshit. lie. Yeah. At this point, and this is one of those things where the special does it in this moment, but I'm not even sure we should do it in this moment, we are introduced to a woman named Misty Caruso, Caruso, who's an Alameda County Sheriff's Department detective. She's in another part of the state just watching all this happen on television, unaware that she will come to play a pretty sizable role yeah. later. Then the press conference happens. Lieutenant... Kenny that Park. That son of a bitch, the other person who should never be working in law enforcement ever again or public information. He is a public information officer for the Vallejo Police Department who goes before they issue a press release saying all of this is an orchestrated event. He goes on camera. He says, from this point forward, I won't refer to either of them as a victim or a witness, which is not calling them liars outright. But he's basically accusing them of having made up the whole thing. He claims they wasted resources for nothing. I don't know how they wasted resources given nobody actually investigated yeah, anything. Yeah, the only thing they've done is persecute the two of them. I don't know how much persecution costs. Yeah. But apparently um, it's sizable that they owe the city an apology. Mm-hmm. And they've all started calling her the gone girl. Yeah. Mystery. It's right. the gone girl. She has staged her entire thing. It's all a hoax. They haven't even spoken to Denise when no, they have this. Uh, none of them. Yeah. Uh, and Denise doesn't know the press conference is happening because she's on a commercial flight to San Francisco. Um, okay. So she walks into his attor- her attorney's office and he tells her about the press conference and he immediately begins to grill her because this is what attorneys do, even if you're going to hire yeah. them. Um He's convinced by her emotions. He says he believed her story, that she had not made this up, that it was not a hoax. 
He recalls the moment when she described the kidnapper getting her out of the trunk inside a garage and putting a blanket over her on the concrete floor. And she heard him cleaning and figured he was cleaning up after the last victim he had taken. And she thinks, this is the end for me. I'm going to die. And she tells herself to be calm and grateful for the life she has. That she's not going out begging or on her knees or anything. She's saying, I'm going to be... I'm going to keep my. I'm going to die with my dignity. She tells the lawyer about two things they ordered her not to say, which she did not say to the Huntington Beach police. One, one of the guy was in the Marines. One of the guys was in the Marines. The second, they raped her, which they did because they said they didn't have information on her to ensure her silence because she was not the person they expected to abduct. She was not Aaron's ex. Again, really would like to have that story, but it was not told in this particular report. So they raped her, and they filmed it, and they said they'd air it on the internet if she went to the cops. And they said because she didn't seem um, cooperative enough, mm-hmm. they had to do it again. Mm-hmm. So they raped her more than once because she on has, camera. She has to look like she's, she's enjoying, enjoying it. it. They don't want to—it's not blackmail material if it looks—oh, like, my God. Anyway, and, and this is the woman they're having this press conference about. Yeah, this is the one who owes Vallejo an apology. The guy comes and gets her at 2 a.m. and starts to drive her to Huntington Beach and tells her he wishes they they could have met under different circumstances. We're back at the moment of her release, the end of her kidnapping and abduction. Um, Denise's attorney, in response to hearing this story, asks for a sexual assault exam and says they'll lose evidence if they don't do it right away. And the Vallejo cops respond by saying, just have her sleep in her clothes and don't shower, and we'll talk about it in the morning. Once again, <laughs> like, and now they should just disband the, the Vallejo Police Department entirely, fire everyone and let them be protected by some other organization. I mean, Because those Christ. people are not qualified to do it. So Denise finally goes in to speak with law enforcement, and for two days she is questioned. The first day by the police, the second day the FBI take over. They treat her like a criminal. The FBI agent says he's 99% sure that she did it. And then Then. Thursday, March 26th, the San Francisco Chronicle receives an email filled with details about the kidnapping saying, it's not a hoax. It's... the kidnapper, the kidnapper emails them because he's mad that it's being called the gone girl kidnapping because he wants credit for having done it. And so he attaches photos of the evidence, including the room where Denise was held. He describes uh, his past criminal history, how he and his accomplice call themselves the Ocean's Eleven Gentlemen Criminals. Uh, all of these emails are coming in while Denise is being grilled and interrogated by law enforcement. And the two of them are being denounced by the Vallejo de Police Department. Um, so they couldn't be sending the emails themselves. But they still don't believe them. They still think this is all another accomplice. And so it continues like this. They don't have enough to charge them. But Denise and Aaron are living with the constant fear of arrest for two months. And they're terrified by the fact that Whoever did this to them and who threatened to kill them if they brought in the police is still out there and free and nobody's looking for them because the Vallejo Police Department is a bunch of incompetent boobs. Two months later, June 5th, 2015, there's a home invasion in a nearby community, Dublin, Dublin, California. Miguel Campos, uh, the detective with the Dublin police who is interviewed, um, 
describes how an older couple woke up to a bright flashlight in their faces and a laser pointer. It's basically the same scenario that Denise and Aaron were put through, but things go awry very quickly. When he goes to tie up the wife, the husband jumps the intruder across the bed and tackles him. The wife manages to flee to the bathroom, call 911. The suspect tries to get away, but the husband hits him with a flashlight really hard before he does. In the struggle, the kidnapper drops his cell phone, and um, it is left behind for police right. to discover. They trace it to a woman in Orangedale, California, and she tells them, with no struggle that is documented by this special, oh, that belongs to my son, Matthew Muller. She says he lost his phone the day before. They learned that he was also in the Marines for five years, which is something Denise right. learned from him during the abduction. He was honorably discharged as a sergeant. He graduated summa cum laude from Pomona University, and he went to Harvard Law School. In 2008, however, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and by 2015, his life was falling apart. He's been disbarred. He's separated from his wife, and his mother tells the cops in Dublin he's basically been living in our cabin in South Lake Tahoe. And now we once again return to an Alameda County Sheriff's deputy named Misty Caruso, I think is how yeah, you pronounce her name. Um, she's asked by her boss if she wants to serve a warrant. Because it's gonna tomorrow's gonna be her first day as a detective. Oh, and, I missed that part. And and you know, that would she like to go ahead and come on this warrant serving thing that they're doing because, you know, she's gonna be this is who she's it's like prep for who she's gonna grow up to be any minute. Yeah. Totally. And she says, sure, why not? I'd mm -hmm. love to, because she's aspiring to be a police detective. Absolutely. So she she goes and she describes the raid. It's a, it's a lot of people. They line up in formation. They, um, they enter the house uh, without being admitted to the house, and Matthew comes out of one of the bedrooms. They immediately take him down. They find ski masks. They find stun guns, laptops. They find he's driving a they stolen Ford They find Aaron's Mustang. laptop. Yeah. A large green bag with a blow-up doll in it, swim goggles, duct tape. A sound familiar? Blow-up doll that was pre-programmed to get an erection without. With I was like, wait, wait, what? They said that? I yes, missed that. I was like, wow, what's that about? I yeah, it was not fully explained, but it was the a house full of the most suspicious collection of materials you could possibly imagine. They find the goggles with the duct with the duct tape over them, the headphones, all of it, everything, the wetsuits, everything they described. They find in this house the guns with the laser pointer tapped to mm -hmm. uh, uh, taped to them and but the there's one lights. other thing and it sticks with misty miss misty yes not Misty. Yeah. there's a single blonde hair stuck in the duct tape attached to the goggles and none of the case no, the, the the they don't find any the of the from dublin do they not don't have, have blonde hair, hair. So she tracks down the owner of a white Mustang that Matthew was using, and he's a college student living on Mare Island, which is in Vallejo. Right down the street from... And he mentions the kidnapping hoax, which she puts in air quotes. She looks into the news coverage of the case, which she watched at the time. No one from Vallejo PD will talk to her. Because why would they? She calls the FBI. They're not actually a police department at all. Um, she calls the FBI. She claims they told her it was a hoax. The FBI, of course, denies that they say that. The FBI blames Vallejo. They said they thought it was a hoax. We didn't think it was a hoax. So finally, one rep from Vallejo PD and two FBI agents head to the Dublin, California station to meet with her. 
Three months later, this is three months after the ordeal, Denise's attorney calls and says, the cops want to talk to you. They think they caught the guy. Because on the GPS on Mueller's car, they find the address where he dropped Denise off in Huntington Beach, close to her, the house on where Euclid. she was, grew up. July 13th, 2015, their defense attorneys hold a press conference demanding full apologies from the Vallejo PD. On 2017, in Sacramento, Mueller is charged in federal court with kidnapping for ransom of Denise. He's not charged with sexual assault because there was no jurisdiction in federal court for those crimes. When the indictment is unsealed, Lieutenant Kenny Park, the PIO who got on TV and called them liars, never appears on camera again. Ever. He's still working as a public information officer. But he's still officer. there. Um, Fire him. They serve up a captain to answer questions. And his quote is, we stand by our statement that it was a hoax, but we're investigating it. Which is like, what? <laughs> Based been, on He's been indicted what? for this crime There's in federal actually, court. Yes, we actually have proved who did it. And they still aren't backing down or apologizing to these poor people. They have proof that Mueller was the one who called Aaron's phone. He actually was the kidnapper. He was trying to get... They have just these mountains of evidence. Yeah, it's finally, incontrovertible. Finally, the city attorneys for Vallejo write a letter of apology that the chief of police signs. And they admit that Park's words were harsh and defensive, but it's not a public apology. So they sued the fucking city. Yeah. Alleging defamation and other things. Um, they won their suit for... They I settled thought, their suit out of court, which I wouldn't have done. They should have gotten $100 million and the everybody in the police department fired. Yeah, totally. Um, they uh, two point five million dollars, as you said. No admission of wrongdoing on anyone's part. I actually, either. didn't say that. They settled for two point five yeah, million out of court. That's like ridiculous. Yeah. Um, uh, which was a gift. Two years later, Mueller enters a plea of guilty and is given a forty-year sentence. This was the last insult, right? Denise talks about how in indictments of this sort, typically the victims do not reveal their names. But they wanted their names. Aaron and Denise wanted their full names included in the indictment because to it make it clear that they were Mueller's victims. Right. That and they, they wouldn't fucking do it. They were victim F, victim M, and victim F. Victim male and victim female. They wouldn't name them in the indictment because it would have been an admission of everything they had gotten wrong along yeah. the way. So they wrote a book called Victim, victim F. F. Yes, absolutely. Um, ultimately, there's a happy-ish ending. They were married. One of the defense attorneys was their officiant. They Misty was at the wedding. Child. Yeah, their lives have gotten their lives back together. Um, Colonel Mustard was a chosen employee of the year that year mm -hmm. by the Vallejo Police Department in the ultimate indictment of the entire organization. I just think they should be disbanded. I know. I, you know, I I did some more internet sleuthing to see because I knew this episode had probably caused something. I think he has been. He has lost a leadership position in the policeman's union, but that was it. I couldn't find any more I evidence. I think he of, should be working at the, the drive through window at I, Wendy's. I just don't think he should be anywhere near. Nothing against being a drive through worker at Wendy's, but I think that he has an, any business being a police officer. I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know why everybody isn't fired. I, I, I just, I don't. That, they, that that police department exists is still astonishing. And one of the things that was really also, I think, worth noting about it is 
once they started the Gone Girl narrative, mm-hmm. like first the media completely ran with he murdered his mm-hmm. girlfriend, and then when they got the Gone Girl narrative, everybody in the country was talking about it. I remember, and some of the newscasters involved with from ABC involved with 2020 were David Muir was mm-hmm. talking about Gone Girl. They were all once they got a narrative. Mm-hmm. That from the police, mm-hmm. they were running with it. It really is. And these were, you know, white, affluent medical workers living in a fine community. If they had been mm-hmm. anybody from a challenged group or a mm-hmm. minority, I don't know how they would ever have survived this. Mm-hmm. Like they were able to get lawyers. Their families were there to support them. And they were still subjected to. Just one of the most shocking stories I've ever seen. I don't know how anybody with any fewer resources could ever have survived it. The the, the most damning thing to me about it, the, the thing that scares me and I think goes to support what you just said as its primary concern, is the complete disregard for the physical evidence they were being presented with in exchange for their TV show-driven, gut-level, intuitive, common-sense bullshit. The, for which there was absolutely no evidence. Yeah. Like— Evidence. You have to have some evidence of what you're charging people with. You can't just believe that. Yeah. Like, I, I, I understand, you know, it usually probably is the boyfriend. Mm-hmm. You know, so I see that you have to eliminate him. But at the same time, you also have to, in some way, prove that it's him. Why was the phone put in airplane mode? I mean, that just, was just... Because they literally not... decided the case before they investigated it. And that's why they should all be fired. And the, the public information officer should be excoriated. Mm-hmm. That man should never work anywhere near mm-hmm. a police officer or a public information office ever again. What a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. Like, no press conference like that, even if it was true, mm-hmm. no press conference like that should ever have been given by the police. That was just the most shock. It was just, I, I, I was completely blown away. This is why I wanted to... Yeah, totally. ...to pursue this, this particular episode, because and... I was just a. I think falsely accused is sort of the uh, theme of the month. On our next episode, we're going back to something we did previously where we are going to begin a criminal pairing, if you will, of a true crime TV club <laughs> with a true crime movie time. Like wine pairing, but this is crime but pairing. With horrible, disturbing stories. True crime TV club will it. introduce- crime pairing. that's great. Right? Next week, it's The Crimes That Changed Us is the name of the series. The episode is The Atlanta Olympic Bombing. That's season one, episode two, and that is setting us up to talk about the movie Richard Jewell, which was directed by Clint Eastwood and was released, I believe, last year. So we're going to watch a special that purports to be about the facts of the case first, and then we're going to watch a dramatized so version of it Next week second. is True Crime TV Club, yes. and then it's True Crime Movie Time. Movie Time. We love naming and branding stuff. That's right. And so, yeah, but it's going to be a crime pairing. I like that. A criminal pairing or that's, a crime pairing. A crime pairing, perfect. right? Yeah. Like, cause it like a wine, wine pairing. Like a, yeah. <laughs> you are so clever. I really am. We really we're are. Very, we're, just... we're just so too, we're, we're cleverer than the Vallejo Police Department. Oh, and if there's anything out, anyone can do out there to disband... Mm-hmm. The Vallejo Police Department and cause 
Colonel Mustard and his idiot IPO guy to never work in law enforcement again, we would like to do anything we can to encourage you. Absolutely. And until then, and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. Lunch! This is TDPS.